Hi, welcome. This is the Seattle Mama Doc podcast. I'm Dr. Wendy Sue Swanson. We all work so hard to perfect how we pull off parenthood, and often in these really political times, we may not feel good enough. I'm here to help you face these challenges head on. Today's episode is about firearms, public health, uh, the roles of pediatricians, and then our profound opportunity as parents to create a safer community and a safer home and really safe understandings and knowledge for our families and kids around firearms and protection. So this podcast could be felt as controversial. I don't think anything I'm going to say here is, but you can certainly let me know on Twitter or on my Facebook or on the blog itself. I recently published a blog post that really kind of um, anchors what I'm going to say here today. Um, And you're welcome to see that on Seattle Mama Doc as well. That was published in September. No, that was published in October. <laughs> it's October, and it was published just after the Las Vegas shooting. So I'm recording this in early October, and as I think we're still feeling the horrific, um, almost stillness that's come in the wake of the Las Vegas shooting and the ongoing reminders that this repeated cycle of violence is becoming a very American thing. You know, there's no arguing with some of this data, and I want to review that today, and I'll provide a little bit of my own opinion, but also just some tips I've learned along the way from safety experts, firearm experts, pediatricians, and then parents, and my own experiences in my life with firearms. Okay, so in the United States, you know, we have more guns per capita in the United States than in any other country in the world. I mean, just break that down, right? There's just more guns by number for the number of human beings that live in our country than anywhere else. And more people per capita die in the United States of America than any other country, which makes this a really significant public health crisis, but it also makes it uniquely American. And I think that's where it gets it gets tricky. But coming from just an experience of, of being a mom and having the luxury of being a pediatrician and learning from all sorts of other families and mentors, I just want to review some, some more of the data. You know, 36,000 people, more than actually, died from firearms in 2015. But really to keep that in perspective, 60% of those deaths in 2015 were suicides. And, and this data comes specifically from a recent editorial that was published in JAMA, which is the Journal of the American Medical Association. All of the editors for the large journals under the American Medical Association came together and published an editorial um, soon after the Las Vegas shooting to stand up really ultimately the calling this public health crisis what it is. They point out that on average... Every single day in the United States, 100 people die every single day at the end of a firearm. Now, 60 of those on average will be dying from an intentional attempt, you know, an intentional suicide at ending their own life. But there's something from the paper that I love the way they position the data on that, and that is that the lethality of an intent or an attempt to end your life is really different when firearms are around versus when it's not. So If someone decides in a moment of absolute helplessness that they want to end their life and there's a firearm at their disposal or in arm's reach or in a place that they know they can get to, if they attempt to end their life with a firearm as a suicide attempt, 90% of the time they're successful. Nine out of ten people who try to kill themselves with a gun do. 
Now, that like makes kind of horrifically that really makes a lot of sense, right? Like kind of like it's hard to mess that one up. So nine out of 10 people who try that do. But when you study those who attempt to commit suicide in life, if they use something other than a firearm to try to end their life, the majority of people who try to end their life but survive don't go on to die from suicide. So most people who try to end their life at some point get the help they need to not have their underlying mental health challenge or depression or whatever it may be overwhelm them and end their life. They die of different causes. So 90% of the time when they try with something that's not a gun, they end up surviving the attempt. And most people who end up surviving a suicide attempt don't die from suicide, meaning that they get a second chance at life. Those people who are suffering with any kind of challenge in life, that they feel like they're at the end of their life, and there's a firearm around, most of them do, and they don't get the second chance. So if anything today, I think, gosh, let's think on how we create a different culture where 60% of those who die every year from firearms in our country are dying from suicide, not just pointing at mental health professionals or mental health problems, but really thinking, like, how do we make sure that the numbers change? You know, there's also good data that backs up what we do. And it's, 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 it's kind of a simple solution. It's really around safe storage. It's saying we know that many of the firearms, you know, a third of homes, for example, in the United States have firearms in them. The majority of those homes, they're not stored safely even when kids are around. But we know with safe storage, there is a 75% reduction in the risk of firearm suicide and unintentional shooting in kids under the age of 20. It's like a whoa, right? So sometimes it feels like we don't have anything we can do after these mass shootings to end death by firearms. Um, and it's not true because if we just look at even the suicide risk, if we have firearms in our homes or in the places where our kids go or the places anyone we love goes, if the safe storage is intact, meaning that a firearm is stored separately from the ammunition and it's stored unloaded, that that safe storage, either from a trigger lock or from a safety box and being separate from ammunition and not being loaded, 75% reduction in the home there of a risk of firearm suicide and unintentional shooting in kids and people under 20. So that's a huge thing that you can do is work in your home or in someone you love who you know has firearms, grandparents, friends, cousins, anybody, good friends, family friends, whoever it is. If you know there are firearms in their home or if they're in your home, really working and thinking kind of fastidiously about your storage. Because the numbers are just so real and staggering that this is a public health crisis um, because, you know, since 1968, more people in the United States have died from gun violence just since 1968. So that was the year Bobby Kennedy was shot. 1968 have died more from gun violence than in battle during all the wars the country has fought since the inception of the United States of America. So I was born in 74, six years after that. But really, like, since that time, more people have died from gun violence than in any war, you know, than the total of all these wars that we've participated in. So it's real, real numbers. So just moving on, the other thing I think to talk about then is what are the risks? In the post that I wrote, one of the things I said, like, maybe you can't – the things that you do in your house today don't prevent a mass shooting. And I talked with one of my mentors and um, – researchers here at University of Washington, Dr. Fred Rivara, who's also the editor of JAMA Pediatrics. And I had him read the blog post and I said, you know, what could I have said better since he's been studying prevention and firearm safety and, and preventative injuries from things like car accidents and trampolines and everything else that kind of puts kids at risk for injury. And he said, well, I, he said, I disagree. You know, he mentioned to me that ultimately a mass shooting is defined by being a shooting of more than four people. 
And if you look at the Columbine shooting or you look at a horrific shooting in our area in the Marysville High School, access to firearms um, could change the game there. And the experience of in a home of how you talk with kids about firearms safety and their access to them might change it. And that I kind of t- I really took that to heart to mean that's right, right? How we teach and, and teach our children about firearms and what they know about it and how they understand the risk and how they even experience firearms as glamorized or not really changes it. So that points me even to another controversial place, which is ultimately kind of media and media violence, exposure to violence and what that does. There's something called the weapons effect. And that's been coined really in, in research for decades now, looking at ultimately what happens when you watch a video game or play a video game with a first-person shooter? Or what happens when you see a movie or a show where someone's using a firearm and kills somebody in it? And the concern about the weapons effect, particularly in a developing mind like a child, is that if you are repeatedly exposed to violent media, you start to misunderstand the true cost of what happens when someone fires a firearm that is designed to hurt people and kill them, and then they die. That the experience of in a first-person shooter, for example, you're just kind of running around. And I've seen these first-person shooter games. I've played them myself. You know, when you are using a firearm in those games and then someone on the other end of it dies, they're not really dying. You're not. You're misrepresenting actually the true consequence of the action. So considering limiting that in our homes will change the relationship that our children have with firearms, with what happens when they are you know when they pull the trigger, and what happens when a when a bullet goes into another human body. So it's something to certainly consider. In one of the recent editorials that was published just before uh, the Las Vegas shooting, it was called Guns and Violent Media, a Toxic Mix with an Available Antidote. And that's included in my blog post that you can read. Some of the data really on the media violence and and exposure, um, I, I really loved in this editorial. This was written by two University of Washington professors and pediatricians, again, Dr. Rivara, but also Dr. Dimitri Christakis, who studies media and its effects on kids and, and who is a colleague of mine here in Seattle as well. But, you know, media violence, they say, of course, is that it's pervasive um, Seven children and adolescents die every day in the United States secondary to guns. And that studying media violence is kind of complicated and and almost in some worlds controversial because of how you can do that study. But what's clear is that we know that exposure to this kind of media changes the relationship that kids have. So for now, I'd say look at things like common sense media. I love that. It used to be an app. Now it's a a really rich website where you can go and kind of look up any video game, any movie, any show, and it'll just give you information about what kind of violence this has. And then you can make the decision if you want your kids exposed to it. But ultimately, we just have this big opportunity, I think, to change how we do this. So in ending kind of, I just want to give some tips really ultimately, um, some quotes from that powerful editorial published in the Journal of the American Medical Association this week. And then also I'll give you some tips on just talking to your kids about violence. One of the quotes from this article written by, again, all the editors from the journals says this, and it's, quote, Guns do not make individuals, their families, or their homes safer, and they result in far more deaths to loved ones than to an intruder intended to cause harm. That's based on a study. And what's often forgotten is that 60% of these gun deaths in 2015 in the United States were suicides. Means used to attempt suicide matter. Guns will result in suicide deaths well over 90% of the time, whereas ingestion of pills or wrist-cutting will be unsuccessful more than 90% of the time. 
Another quote that I think is really important is how they end this article, which is ultimately kind of our opportunity to think legislatively. And I don't want to get into the politics of this today because I'm I'm not I don't think I think I'm a bit um, uninformed in some ways, even though I, I read a lot about it. But I but I want to say I do think that the laws that we have around guns do change the culture that we have more guns per capita and more people die in this country per capita than anywhere else in the world. It means we're doing something differently and something that might be more risky. They end the article saying this. And this is, a, again, an article called Death by Gun Violence, a Public Health Crisis. And I quote, guns kill people. More background checks, more hotel, school, and venue security, more restrictions on the number and types of guns that individuals can own, and development of smart guns, which I'll explain, may help decrease firearm violence. But the key to reducing firearm deaths in the United States is to understand and reduce exposure to the cause just like in any epidemic. And in this case, that's exposure to guns. So that's what we can do. We can systematically think about how we talk about our kids, where the firearms are in our community, in our homes, and in our lives, and make sure that safe storage is really there. So quick thing on smart guns. I learned about them sitting on a coalition to help um, prevent tragedies from firearms. And I, smart guns, as I understand them, are just that, right? They're a little bit smarter in using technology to make sure that the only person that fires the gun is the gun owner. The hope, of course, is that that will be another potential in reducing the risk of firearm suicide and reducing unintended shootings, particularly in young kids, because there has been data, of course, that kids, of course, are driven by their curiosity when they come upon a firearm. They don't just pick it up. About 50 percent of the time, they'll pull the trigger even when kids who know they're not supposed to. And that's when those unintentional shootings happen. Smart guns have technologies on them that the gun itself, the firearm, kind of knows and is only matched with its owner. So that can be accomplished with like, you know, in the future, I think retinal scans. It can be accomplished with fingerprinting. It can be combination with um, trigger locks and combination locks, meaning that if there's a firearm in your home and there's only one person that's ever expected to use it for hunting or for something else, you would just have something on the firearm that only allows that firearm to fire by that person. That is a great strategy moving forward, too. So quick sound bites on how to help and what to say to your kids. The morning after the Las Vegas shooting, I talked to my boys who are 8 and 10. And I told them about it because I wanted to control what they heard about it since it was the largest mass shooting, at least of recent and modern times, in the United States. And I gave them information really just kind of based on how old they are. You know, they you know what? My youngest son has a hard time, I think, at times still teasing out reality and fantasy. So I really just said, you know, there was a really bad man who was in Las Vegas, which is in Nevada, which is far from here. It's in the desert area. We've never been there. And when he was there, he took a gun and he killed a lot of people. And you may hear about it at school. And I left it really simple and brief. I gave him just kind of tight information about what it was. I told them that the police were there and that the police worked really hard to protect people and got them to safety and that Las Vegas was really far away from our house, just to put it in perspective. And I was just reminded that I don't want to introduce information that they don't need to know if they don't need to know it. So I, you know, didn't go into the horrors of how people died, the suffering that people experienced, the loss and tragedies and kind of weight of it. Because for my 8 and 10-year-olds, that wasn't really, I think, what was going to give them energy information to go into their school day and understand. But I said that people were really sad and that I was sad and that that day in particular, I was going to work as a pediatrician and I was going to work on making a community safer. I reminded them that in our home, we don't have firearms. I reminded them that we don't play with toy guns. I, re I reminded them that we are we choose carefully what we watch like all these different things that we're doing in life to make sure that our house is really safe and that they were safe 
and that our community was safe. Now, if you have older kids, like middle schoolers, they still sometimes need a little help with reality and fantasy, as we all know, and they may feel a little bit more under threat. So they may distort facts and figures, and they may kind of distort a relative personal risk, meaning that they may think Las Vegas is could be them. Well, it could be, but it is far from them today in this day. Um, they may romanticize or misunderstand the gravity of it. They may not, if you say it's the biggest mass shooting or something, they may kind of distort that and misunderstand it. So putting it in perspective for them is really important. And middle schoolers really often need to know more about how to protect themselves. They'll focus on personal safety more than younger kids will. So you want to keep showing them what they do in their homes, what you do in your homes, what you do in homes that they visit, and other ways that you work as a family to protect and then my last piece on with middle schoolers is you just always have to give honest answers. Don't lie to kids. Of course, that never works. <laughs> um, so, you know, let them ask questions, remind them um, about how they're safe, and give them a sense of control that sometimes that you can't answer all the questions, and that's okay, too, and they don't have to be able to answer every question. And then high schoolers, once they get to high school, like, they really do, of course, know fantasy from reality. And because of the widespread coverage, they're likely to have lots of questions on, on these kinds of events, of course. But they're still developing how they think, um, and they can easily distort reality. So our job with teenagers in high school and young adults is really helping them understand how rare this is and the ways that officials and our communities are working to change it. But teenagers may really form very strong opinions um, about firearms, about safety, about politics. So listen to their ideas. Let them think of ways to contribute to making sure they live a long life, that their friends and family live long lives. Encourage them to volunteer, making sure friends are protected. Remind them about the risk of suicides with firearms and put that in perspective for them and help them understand if they know someone's in trouble, making sure that firearms are stored safely and out of reach of those that they love. But the other thing that teenagers really need is just a reminder that they have so many different ways that they personally protect themselves from danger, sharing information that they've heard, protecting their friends, sharing information with trusted adults, and then making sure that if they have curiosity about firearms, that you are there to answer the questions. I think this is a really dark, scary, and repetitive cycle in the United States. And as I wrote in my blog post, I have lost a very dear loved one because of a firearm tragedy. And so I take this really personally, and this is really meaningful to me as it is to everyone else. And so I make this podcast kind of um, in peace and with a hope that we can all remember as parents that what we do, how we talk about firearms, how we expose our kids to media, the news, the radio, the games they play and the movies they watch has really changes their experience and understanding of firearms and that we sincerely today – by ensuring that we're working towards safe storage, that we're talking with other people about firearms and our hope for just living more safely amid this community, that I sincerely believe that this time today in 2017 can be a time forward where we turn the volume down on these numbers and we raise our children and ourselves to be smarter, more loving and compassionate amid the freedoms afforded us in the United States to decrease the number of deaths from firearms. More information at Seattle Mama Doc. We'll link to these articles. Um, please feel free to leave comments, suggestions, or things I can read in the comments. The reality is, I feel like we know it more now than we ever have before. Parenting is a high-stakes job. But the good news is, you've got this. 
Thanks for listening. The Seattle Mama Doc Podcast episodes air every single week. I'm always interested in hearing what you have to say, what was helpful, and what you want to learn more about. Reach out to me on Twitter at Seattle Mama Doc, on my Facebook, Seattle Mama Doc, or at SeattleMamaDoc.com. Tell me what you want to learn. Tell me if you want to join me and point me to experts you'd love to learn more from. 